Hi, I'm Rachel Gastic, and this is Formative, the podcast where today's leaders are interviewed by the leaders of tomorrow. Our guest today is distinguished playwright, director, and screenwriter Emily Mann, whose litany of accolades includes two Tony nominations, a Peabody Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, eight Obie Awards, and the 2011 Person of the Year Award from the National Theatre Conference. In her 30 years as the artistic director and resident playwright of the McCarter Theater Center, which itself won the 1994 Tony Award for Outstanding Regional Theater, Emily oversaw the production of over 160 plays, including 40 world premieres. And now I'd like to introduce my student co-host, Kevin, from MS-127X in the Bronx. Kevin, how are you today? Oh, it's going. Nothing bad. No bad energy. It's all good vibes. Good vibes. Just kicking back, huh? Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about what grade you're in and how old you are and where you're from? Uh, I'm in seventh grade. I'm um, 13 and um, I'm, I live in New York in the Bronx in Petrister. Well, Kevin, we have a really exciting guest on the show today and we're just so thrilled that she's here with us. Are you excited to speak with today's guest? Yep. I'm a bit nervous, too. You're a bit nervous? Don't be nervous. Uh, Let's welcome Emily Mann to the show. Emily, thank you so much for being here. Kevin, what's your first uh, question for Emily? How was the road getting to where you are today? Like, Was there parts where you felt like people were like, you can't do this, you can't do that? Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what my profession is, which is that I'm in the theater. I'm a playwright and I'm a director and I was an artistic director for 30 years of a theater, right? You know this. And when I started out, I was told by my college advisor that, oh, you may be very talented, you know, but women cannot direct professionally in this country. And I didn't know that. And I was very lucky that I had such support from my parents My mother was a remedial reading teacher, and my father was a professor of American history. And by then, it was too late to tell me I couldn't do what I wanted to do, and I decided I was going to do it anyway. And I pushed forward. How did, like, your dad being a history teacher impact the way you are today, like, having an educator at home? That's a terrific question. I had two educators at home, and they both believed in the fact that women could do whatever they wanted to do. And they were my support through my trying to break through into the field that I broke into. It was basically run all by men. And without my father's perspective, historical perspective, about the fact that, you know, it's a rolling battle for equality for all people. There are times when it's better and times when it's worse. I happened to be coming into my profession when it was at its worst, but it didn't mean it wasn't going to get better. And in fact, it has. That make sense? Yeah, it does. Sorry to hear about that, to be honest, for like a teacher to tell you that you're not doing good at something. Like they're supposed to help you get to like where you are, like become a better person inside you. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, thank you. It was like a day in your life as a seventh grader. Like, how was seventh grade for you for experience? Seventh grade was really hard for me. 
at that time I was, I was writing, I was writing short stories, things like that. And I loved all my writing, but everyone seemed to be pairing off into couples. And that made me nervous. And uh, it just, the social stuff was hard for me because I was shy. I was sort of popular through sixth grade, then seventh grade, it all changed into something else. And I didn't quite know how to deal with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. Good. Yeah, it does. Yeah. As a child, was there a piece of theater that it, like impacted you? We didn't really go to the theater when I was very young. I went once with my Jewish religious school to Second Avenue in New York, and I saw the Dybbuk in the Yiddish language on Second Avenue, and we wore headphones, and we had simultaneous translation, and that was the first play I ever saw. Um, Very briefly, the young woman in the play is in love with uh, a, a young student. Her parents don't think he's good enough for her. He dies. They force her her to marry another man. And at the wedding, suddenly the voice of her dead lover comes out of her mouth. And to see a woman suddenly speak with a man's voice. I was a little girl and I was screaming. I was so terrified. So that's a moment I'll never forget. And I don't think I've ever been able to replicate, um, either as someone creating theater or viewing theater. But boy, was that something. And the other play I saw that really impacted me as a girl was the touring production that came to Chicago, A Fiddler on the Roof. And it was great. And I cried and cried and cried. And I sat with my mom and um, but I never did musicals. When I was started to do theater, it was in high school, and it was mainly what we call straight plays. They were dramas or they were comedies, but they they weren't musicals. So when I went to see a musical, I was very excited. Entertainment today, how is it different from like back then? Well, of course, now at the moment with COVID, my profession is at particular risk because the theater is live, right? And so you want to be in the same room with each other. And even though there are theaters that are open and you've got to be vaccinated and masked and all that, still a lot of people don't want to go. And a lot of people are getting sick and shows are getting canceled all the time, right? So that's one thing about these, since March of 2020, my profession has changed a lot and entertainment has changed a lot. And it's more about what's online. And it's more about television and film and things you can stream at home. But I think also a very good difference is since the murder of George Floyd, there has been a reckoning in this profession that I'm in, where it's looking at equal rights for people of color in a way that they haven't. Now, I had dedicated my life to producing the work of plays by and about women and people of color. So I've been part of the push in the industry and the revolution industry since I was a small girl. But now we're seeing some systemic change being brokered a little bit more in the theater at large. And so I think you're going to see more plays by and about women and more plays by and about people of color, particularly Black people. 
And that's a great shift. Very exciting. So, so you have uh, like over 50 productions. Which did you enjoy the most? That's, I mean, another good question and I and a common question. I have, I don't have a favorite, but the one I think I enjoyed doing the most was a play called Having Our Say. Uh, I wrote it and I directed it and I produced it first at McCarter. And it was based on um, the real words and the real lives of two African-American sisters, both over 100 years old. When I met them, one was 103 and the other was 105. And they had so much wisdom to impart and so much history to impart. And I had read the book that was written about them um, before I sat down to write, but being with them was one of the greatest moments of my life. And I'd never met anyone that old. I remember sitting there just astounded. And they were like one person. They would finish each other's sentences. They'd lived together all their lives. And they remembered not only back to when they were children in the 19th century, but they remembered all the stories that their parents told them. And their father had been born into slavery. And then he remembered the day he was free. They were all part of a very happy family of 10 kids. All of them went to college. All of them became professionals. And um, they were the sort of matriarchs of the family. And I just loved them and I loved their families. So I made a play of it and it was a very big success and it went to Broadway and then I made a movie out of it. It was all of that, having learned so much from meeting them and having audiences across the country meet them. That was my most gratifying, I think, to have had that much impact from one play and one story. So that's what I would say would be my favorite. Emily, can I ask, what is it like to take your plays and and see them into a movie and understanding how to be a playwright first as you're telling stories and the remarkable story you just shared with us and translating that into live theater? And then what's involved in going from theater into film? Well, um, I'll just be very concrete about it. The play was just them talking directly to the audience in three different locations, three different sets on the stage. The movie, when they started to talk about when they lived at St. Augs in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they were little girls, and this was during Jim Crow, we went there. We actually filmed something that looked like it was on the location of that place. They were in period costumes of that time. In the theater, through language, I'm asking you to imagine all that. And there might, be, and we had some pictures up on the stage that were quite beautifully projected. But you had to, in your mind, as they described it, see what they were telling you. In a movie, we show you that. What was your like favorite Barbie show that uh, you really loved and you liked? You feel passionate about it that you did not create. Well, I would have to say that my favorite Broadway show that I did not write was written by a playwright named August Wilson. And the play was Fences. 
and it was with the great James Earl Jones and Mary Alice. These are some of the most, well, I think that August Wilson, who is an African-American playwright, is the finest American playwright we have. He wrote 10 plays, one for each decade of the 20th century. So this might interest you in your social science hit, is his record of a people living in Pittsburgh in the Hill District, which is where he grew up. And when you look at most of the great American playwrights, who you everyone studies, Tennessee Williams and Edward Albee and Eugene O'Neill um, and Arthur Miller, they wrote four great plays. August wrote nine and a half. He, he, the 10th one he didn't quite get to finish before he died. But he is, if you don't know about him, you may be a little young for his work now. I'm not sure you are. Um, but he's someone I hope that you get to know. He was one of the great, great American poetic dramatists who also had a deep, deep sense of history, culture, and tradition. And he is our finest. So is there like somebody like you've done a play with and like really surprised you? Like they they became a whole different character on stage than what you actually knew them for. Like they changed. It does not have to be famous or not anybody. Yes. And he actually is or was is famous, but he's passed. His name is Philip Seymour Hoffman who is one of the sweetest human beings who ever walked the earth. And he played a Ku Klux Klansman in one of my plays. And he was astounded that he could transform himself into that horrible person. And yet when you knew him, you don't know where he, where he found that, you know, but he was one of those great actors who could find anything that was humanly possible he found a way to discover inside, to embellish into a character. It just astounding to be in a room watching him create. So, Kevin, you said you like social studies, and Emily just mentioned that again. What is it about the subject that you really enjoy so much? Social studies is just like it brings you. And, like, it tells you more of what you didn't know behind, like, in the past. It, like, brings you more. You know more about the earth, your, what you're surrounding, and what used to be there before, like, you were even born decades ago. Because I'm, like, learning more about, like, the tribes of Native Americans mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So it's, like, I don't know how to say because, like, social study has a lot to what it actually brings to me, to be honest. So, yeah, I mean, social studies, does that include history and geography and uh, any culture of, of the time and all of that? Is that social studies? Because I think it the names change depending on the times. But that was my favorite, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's just never ending how interesting it can be to look at the past. And when you look deeply into the past, you so understand the present, right? Yeah. Like you understand how like before is now shaped how it is, like who mm -hmm. actually brought it here. That's right. And the thing about the 
play, my play having our say is that it was living history. Those women lived over a hundred years and they were the repository, if you will, of their family history. So you get the history of the United States really through them. It's just extraordinary. And so I hope you keep, you keep your love of it alive. You think you might want to teach social science or do anything with social science? To be honest, now I think about it, I am good at science, to be honest. So I was even thinking about coming back to this school, actually, as growing up and coming to work here, to be honest, because this is a great environment. Uh-huh, so great. I could become a teacher. You thought about that? It's a great yeah. life, yeah. That leads yeah. to actually one of the questions I had for you was, have you ever, like, felt like, becoming a teacher like in any other stage like middle middle school elementary like pre-k or going on yeah high school college? yeah um I've been uh when I ran uh, the theater here I had an education program that went into the schools all over the state and I went with them and I loved it so I did a lot of classes in um elementary middle and high school I've also taught you know, master classes in, in college and graduate school, but my favorite is with the young, with younger people. So Emily, given where Kevin is in this point of history, where do you see the parallels between your adolescence and where Kevin is at this moment in time? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, there are some, there are many similarities. Um, I was struck in, you know, since, Black Lives Matter has been so powerful and the marches for justice have been um, so powerful that we had a lot of that when I was growing up in the 60s. And then um, some things changed, some things didn't. But, you know, that's the way history works (laughs) in waves and swells. Um, I think that, Kevin, uh, that, that you might be seeing Kevin, a, a, a resurgence of women's rights because um, the right to choose, we may lose that right that we worked so hard to get when I was young. And that might energize a lot of women and good, strong men who support women to want to make sure women don't lose their rights. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I feel like women are like a big change in society. Like, I feel like they make a huge difference. Most like people working in a hospital is women. They really take care of people. And if it wasn't for them, especially during this COVID pandemic, where would we be right now, to be honest? I don't know where we're Right, I know. Like, I know. I don't know where we stand today. So I feel, I even tell my auntie this, she's, I'm like, you work so hard. You even work harder than my uncle. She's like, he knows that. He knows that. Yes, he knows that. <laughs> he knows that. Knows that. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a new appreciation for women's work too. And I think your generation is going to be key in that because you have lived through this. Emily, can you tell us something about uh, where you grew up? I was in... Um, public school in Northampton, Massachusetts, where my father taught at Smith College from the time I was in preschool till uh, through eighth grade. 
And then we moved to Chicago and uh, my father taught at the University of Chicago. And uh, we lived on the South side and I went to the lab school, which was part of the University of Chicago. And that's where I discovered theater was in high school. Oh, so like, how was your experience in Chicago, to be honest? How, well, it was, that's another good question. It was as different a place from Northampton, Massachusetts, as you could get. Northampton's a small town. It's got a women's college at the center of it and a small town around it. Um, moved to Chicago in the late 60s. Now, here's a social studies situation for you. From 66 to 70, I was in Chicago. And at that time, we were in the midst of the Vietnam War. So I was part of the, suddenly it got politicized. The anti-war movement was at its height. The feminist movement got very big, the equal rights for women, right? And the civil rights movement was going full blast. And then the radical groups off of those movements were becoming very strong. And my neighborhood was like a cauldron for all of it. I lived a block away from Elijah Muhammad, who was the head of the Nation of Islam. The Black Panther Party was very close to us. And I was a very big supporter of the Black Panther Party and Fred Hampton. If you have not read about the Black Panther Party and Fred Hampton, I highly recommend him. He was an incredible young leader. And um, there was a lot of student agitation at the time against the war, you know, all kinds of things. So I arrived from a very quiet place into this roaring political uh, firestorm, but it formed me. It shaped me. I learned so much so fast. Sometimes it felt like drinking water out of a fire hose, you know, like, oh, <laughs> and other times I was just so stimulated because I was learning so much every day. You lived in an environment that provided so many history. And at that time, you were like kind of part of the history because you witnessed it happen. So has it also an impact in what you do as a producer and a writer? Absolutely. So much of what I write about comes from those years. Um, because here also was um, a very diverse community of close friends. My father's best friend was an historian named John Hope Franklin, who founded the field of African-American studies history. And he's the one who brought my father to Chicago and his family and our family. We were like one family. So what was wonderful is like we would have dinner once or twice a week. And the kids all had to talk to the fathers about what they thought about what was going on in the world. They were pretty tough on us, but I'm actually very glad they were because from that moment on, I knew that I had to be engaged in what was going on in the world. And it impacted my day to day. So when I started producing plays, as well as writing and directing them, I made sure that America was on the stage at my theater. People from all different walks of life, all different ethnicities, races, and backgrounds, their stories were on the stage, regardless of gender or, yeah. So I really feel I was 
formed by those years in Chicago? Well, I'm going to ask you, Kevin, given that I grew up without the internet and without computers, can you tell me how your life revolves around those things and how things might be different for you than for me? Can you think of that? Well, before COVID, uh, technology was something that you would use at home. It's nowhere near like wow. now. But now like COVID has like brought in everything. It's like we're more related. Like last year, we were, we rely on computers no matter what. When the Wi-Fi was down, it was like, <laughs> how are we going to get through this? And like, it was a lot. How do you feel about Zoom? Like what we're doing right now? I see it changing a lot, to be honest. They have more features on it. <laughs> it's a great website for us to, like, communicate more. Well, it's great that, you know, we're all in four different places and we can all be together right now, which we couldn't have done. Yeah. We learned a lot about that during the pandemic, I think. But I was just at an, my first event. There was a biography that was written about me, and they gave a big book launch at our independent bookstore here in town. And I went to it and I thought I was scared and Zoom is fine. Why don't we just all do it online? And I got into the room and saw people I hadn't seen in ages. And we did, we heavily masked, we hugged each other. And then we were talking and the cues you pick up live, you cannot get from just being on Zoom, just being in the same space with each other. You feel things. To be honest, if, if I wasn't able to come back to school, I wouldn't actually know my teachers more than how I know them now because, like, I had certain teachers that I knew them, but I just didn't really, you know, I wasn't that close to them, like, bonding type of close. Yeah. So now, yeah. like, I get the teachers way more than when we're online. So it's something that, that really I, helps. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I'm in the theater more than I'm in film and television is because it's live and you're in the same room with each other. And the connection is so, well, it's electric. It's electric. It's real in a way that you can't, you can't get when you're getting a performance from someone on screen. It's, it's remarkable. Emily, it's been such an honor to have you here today with us. We always ask our guests the same question. Um, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself when you were 13, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? I think I would tell myself that nobody's perfect. I was a perfectionist when I was a little girl, probably still am. And whenever I didn't do things right, I was just devastated. And I realized that you learn as much from the things you do wrong as the things you do right. And to just be a little easier on myself and enjoy things a little bit more, take the time to smell the roses, as my grandmother would say, and just every once in a while say to myself, good job. I don't think I ever did that. I don't think I ever did. And it was important, and I should have done it more. Well, Emily, we would like to say good job, right, Kevin? Yeah, good job. 
It's just been an honor to have you. So on behalf of myself and my co-host, Kevin, thanks, Emily. Good job. And thank you so much for being with us today. It was great to meet you. I actually learned more about you. You so much. What a pleasure. It was so great to meet you, Kevin. I loved your questions. They were so original and astute. And thank you. Thanks for listening to Formative. I'm your host, Rachel Gazdick, CEO of New York Edge. My co-host today was Kevin from MS-127X in the Bronx. He was assisted by Vivian Jimenez. Our guest today was award-winning playwright and director Emily Mann. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. The show is produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Post-production and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Production manager Gabriella Montekin and executive producer David Hoffman. Thanks to the whole team here at New York Edge for making this series possible. Never miss an episode of Formative by subscribing to the series at newyorkedge.org/formative or wherever you get your podcasts.